But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversions of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Verse 6, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will be. And all the assembly fell silent... And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Verse 19, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. From ancient generations, Moses has in every city those who proclaim him, for it is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. And this is God's word, and let's bow and ask his blessing on our study of it. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to be in your house on your day, together with your word open in our laps. Would you make it live to us, help us understand it, and then help us obey it. We ask all this in your strong and precious name. Amen. Let me make sure my clock is silenced. If you have a clock like mine, I would encourage you to silence it too. Or maybe break it. No, don't break it. Breaking it would be louder than it ringing. But folks, I thought... Long and hard, how do you introduce a passage like this? It's a big turning point. It's very important. It's not the most exciting, and it has elements within it that are not easily discussed. But I thought, maybe just to think for a moment, um, to imagine or suppose 
there were a conversation that was in process and had been not just for hours or days or years, but millennia. Let's call it a story as well as a conversation. And there's millions of people involved in this story, this conversation. And it has all the makings of a really good read. There's adventure, uh, there's defeat, there's chaos, there's control, uh, there's power, there's weakness. Uh, It's all there, but it's about one group of people. And let's suppose that in the middle of this story, in the middle of this conversation, an outsider is now Johnny on the spot. They don't know anything about the conversation prior to their entering it. And they really know little of what's going on, but they have a prominent role, and everyone has to figure out what to do with them. Maybe you found yourself in a situation like that. You'd have to fill in the blanks. Maybe the company you work for at one point in time was found to be under new management. Uh, Maybe, I don't know, something more important. The thing that you've been buying from the grocery store all your life is now no longer made or carried. You liked it. You loved it. And just because of that, they quit making it. You ever feel like that? Or let's say you go to the beach that's been the way it was for a long time, and then suddenly you don't recognize it. They're building houses on every last little piece of dirt they can find. The restaurant that you like down there is closed. And the parking place you used to have near the access has now got a sticker on it that says residents only. You might think, well, I've been here longer than that resident. And they don't even sound like me. Their accent's all off. (laughs) How does that make you feel? Like you've been forgotten? Like you've been brushed aside? These aren't small things. This is where we live. It, It happens from time to time. And we never like it. Well, that's exactly what we're reading about this morning. You've got a very old story that's been going for generations. It's a very Hebrew story. In fact, if you wanted to hear the voice of God for millennia, you needed to know Hebrew because God only dealt and dealt exclusively with one people group, starting with Abraham. But then as you fast forward that tunnel of time, when Jesus comes begins teaching, lives his life of 30-some years, is crucified, buried, risen again. Everything changed. At the sound of it is finished, the veil in the temple tore from the top to the bottom. That curtain kept separate from the outside world, the Holy of Holies, which was where the Ark of the Covenant was. That was how sins were dealt with once a year on the Day of Atonement. And that curtain was to say, everybody stay out, even the people that are called by my name. But after that, and it's torn, the opposite is true. Everybody's welcomed in. Sin has been paid for ultimately. There are no restrictions and no distinctions. Now, for a while, for years actually by this point, we've been reading through Acts and studying it for over a year. And we read how the Gentiles have been brought to faith, welcomed into the church by baptism, started in Caesarea, then it went to Syria of Antioch. Then there are reports of those from the various towns on Paul's first missionary journey, and that's where we stopped at the end of chapter 14. So far, so good, it's rather straightforward. 
But as more and more Gentiles, that's non-Jews, are being saved more and more, and they're being saved further and further from Jerusalem, you've got a problem brewing. There's a question that's starting to gain traction. It had been a question that was asked earlier, years earlier, but now it's come to a head. And the question is, how does God intend to assimilate these non-Jewish people into a very Jewish history, culture, religion for that matter? Well, the assumption up until then was made that they would be assimilated the same as proselytes were assimilated into Hebrew culture all along. The Bible's full, the Old Testament, of proselytes, people that were not born Jewish or Hebrew, but with certain requirements could be absorbed into the community as such. Now, how did proselytes become part of the Hebrew culture? Circumcision. I know that's why you got up this morning and put on your nice clothes and got in your car and drove to church to hear about circumcision, right? I didn't. And I'm the one that has to teach this. I realize this is an uncomfortable topic. But here's the point. If we don't understand what it means, we can't understand what it meant to these people and what they were on about and how difficult their situation was. It's a lot more difficult than ours. So we're going to have to take a shot at it, at least to get our heads around the concept and what it meant to them in order to understand the passage and then to move on. But there's no doubt that it's bloody, it's gross, it's intimate. Um, it It was Tim Keller who said, I'm not the only one who's ever wondered why God couldn't have had this involve some other body part. Why couldn't he just have required a tattoo? That would have been a lot easier. But there's a reason why that was chosen by God for that group of people for that period of time to get them to where they needed to be to see what was important. It's bloody and it's gross and it's intimate and Keller calls it creepy because sin is those things. And it's to show us the penalty or the cost of our sins. Now, this comes from a culture that started with a covenant with God. And a covenant, even in its word, has the meaning of cutting. We strike a deal. They cut a covenant. And it's there laid out for you in uh, Genesis chapter 15, where Abraham and God are, are right there at the agreement, the covenant of Israel. And if you recall... Uh, Abraham is supposed to go get a number of animals and to cut them long ways down the middle, split them in half, and then spread them apart such that there's a pathway between them. And that's the way you made a deal. Here we just get our phones out and or do they use that little app to share money with each other. Or they've even got apps for making contracts. Well, back then you found a bunch of animals and cut them in two. And the idea was, if either of us should change our mind or break this agreement, what's done to these animals is done to us. So that kind of fits with the covenant promises that we hear when God is dealing with his children of Israel. And he says, you will be my people, I'll be your God. If you obey me, I'll bless you. If you disobey me, I'll curse you. If anyone else curses you, I'll curse them. If anyone is kind to you, I'll be kind to them. 
But the idea is if you don't obey these requirements, you will be cut off, not just from these people, but from my presence. That's how it worked. And we shouldn't be shocked by it or surprised. This is the way every other relationship works, doesn't it? If you lie and cheat in your relationship to your spouse, there's this thing called divorce. You're cut off from that relationship. Your children are cut off from a happy home. I mean, serious, ugly, gross, intimate consequences for lying and cheating in a relationship as serious as a marriage, right? Say, well, okay, find a better example. (laughs) Uh, If you steal stuff, there are jails. You're cut off from your freedom. If you drive intoxicated, uh, you will be cut off from your driving privileges. Your license will be revoked. You have no access to our highways and roads anymore, except maybe by bicycle, and it's not the same. I think you get the point. It's called being cut off. And then there's this passage in Colossians that speaks of the Christian being circumcised with the circumcision of Christ. And it's in the context of being given a new heart, which is a circumcised heart, which has nothing to do with being marked in your flesh, but everything to do with having a heart that's sensitive to the heart of God. Now, this whole thing was to remind them, I'm yours and you're mine. You're cut off from the world to be mine. If you cut yourself off from me, you go back to the world. But it was a a picture, a a gruesome picture. And we read that and say, what in the world is the circumcision of Christ? It was the cross where he underwent the covenant curse for us and was cut off from his father when he said, why have you forsaken me? So we don't have to be cut off. That was bloody and gross and intimate and creepy. The world looks at the crucifixion and has no, no reference point to make any sense of it. The Hebrews did. And it's this thing that was given to them that they think was important enough it should be given to all. And that's basically the discussion here. Adam and Eve were the first to be cut off And what was put at the entrance of the garden after they were run out because of their sin? A flaming sword. So the pictures all line up. I think it's clear enough that we can answer the question, what is chapter 15 about? Well, it has to do with a big thorny question. Does a Gentile have to become a Jew before he could become a Christian? The answer to that is no. But it's going to be necessary to see it clearly by this group who's been part of that for so long. So again, it's important that we try to understand from this or understand this from both sides, especially the Jewish point of view, which we would have less in common with. To the Jewish believer, Christianity was a fulfillment of the Old Testament. Think of it that way. You've got Judaism Hebraism, whichever you want to call it. And for so long, they're looking for this Messiah. The vast majority of them rejected Jesus as the Messiah. But some of them did accept him as their Savior, their Messiah. To them, Jesus fits all the promises. He fulfills all of the expectation. He is who 
all the prophets were talking about all along. So for them, the story's still going, and Jesus fits into it perfectly and beautifully. But by the time you get to the Gentile believer, all of this is brand new to them. In fact, the discussion may have started with Jesus without any background as to who Jesus is as far as fitting all these prophecies regarding the history of Israel. They're basically newbies. No apostolic tradition, no voice of the prophets, no history, no background, just Jesus. So they're totally ignorant of Israel's dramatic past. They would naturally have no interest in any of its traditions. But these people have to go to church together. So what do they have in common? Can you see how this could get weird fast? And then compound it, compound it by one inconvenient truth. There will be a lot more Gentile Christians very soon than there are Jewish Christians. That's, that sounds like a takeover, doesn't it? If we just let them do whatever they want, will it, will it even resemble the, the, the history of our fathers? This rich tradition. It's a good question. Sometimes we're part of things that undergo big changes in short order. Well, that's exactly what's happening here. Let's back up a bit into chapter 14 from a couple of weeks ago. This is verse 27. And when they arrived, they're arriving in Antioch where the missionary journey began. They've gone through the journey and worked their way all the way back and gathered the church together. They declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained there no little time with the disciples. No little time. He's going to use no small dissension here in a bit. This is how Luke uh, fast forwards over big blocks of time with very little detail by just saying it was no small thing. It was a big thing. So we don't know exactly how much time is between chapter 14 at the end and the beginning of chapter 15, but at least 10 years, maybe 14. And then when you read it, verse 15, but some men came down from Judea. So they'd gone up from their towns in the Mediterranean and headed north. But then there are these men coming down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Then verse 2, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. I'll show you in a few minutes where in Scripture we can find a lot of details on that no small dissension. Luke kind of moves over it for uh, interest of time. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So it's come to a head. We've got to talk about it. We're sending you to Jerusalem settle this matter. So when Paul and Barnabas arrived, that's in uh, verse 3 and 4, they were welcomed. They had opportunity to give testimony as to what God had done since last they were there. Uh, During the initial welcome, we start reading of that. Uh, But in verse 5, after their report, men rose up to speak. I think we could be generous enough to say they probably had good intentions. This is their thing. And by the end of the story, any problem is solved. So I'd like to think that they're on different sides, but they're on the same page. They just don't know it yet. 
But there's probably going to be quite a bit of fireworks between the two sides in discussion. They were saying that the Greek Christians couldn't be saved by jumping into the middle of a long story. It wasn't enough just to start with Jesus. They said, you must be circumcised. You have to keep the law of Moses. Their point was, these things are important enough for God to have given them to us. And if they're going to be recipients of the same grace under the same covenant of sorts, they require the same restrictions. Makes sense. He would expect it of them if he expects it of us. So Luke records three different addresses. If we're taking note of the structure of what we just read, uh, Luke describes this council, Jerusalem council, in three waves. First, you've got Peter, then Paul and Barnabas, and then James. Peter's up first. He's going to speak not as an authority. If you listen to what he says here in a moment, it's not as if he's throwing his weight around or coming down with what he expects them to follow because of who he is. He kind of takes on the characteristics as far as his posture as, as very much a missionary sent from Jerusalem to those specific people for the purpose of telling them the good news and then returning to give an account as to how it went. We're not going to see uh, much complicated discussion here. It's basically just a simple approach. There's, there's really no theological discourse, but a practical understanding from experience. In other words, Peter the fisherman's going to handle a thorny situation in a humble way they can all agree with. You got to love that. I mean, they didn't bring out the big guns. They brought out the fishermen. He could tell them how to catch fish, and he could tell them what he saw when the Holy Spirit descended on Gentiles just like he did on Jews. But look at verse 7. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up, said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days, he says, God sent me to the Gentiles. But and God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them. Cleanse their hearts by faith. Verse 10, here's what he says should be done. Now, therefore, why, answer this question, are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? That's basically mic drop quality. This is like a kid saying to his parent, why are you asking me to do something you don't even do yourself? Now, parents, don't ever ask your kids to do something you don't do yourself because it's really going to be bad when they ask you why. It's called duplicity. And he knows it and they know it. We can't keep this. That's why we believe Jesus died to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. So if that's true, why are you imposing on them the same thing that we have found ourselves to be false? We can't save ourselves. So why would we even try Verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And that's brilliant. If you notice, he did that backwards, them first. We will be saved. Sons of Abraham, the same way Gentiles will be saved. Not the other way around. Gentiles will be saved the way the sons of Abraham are saved. It's brilliant. Peter had stated a fact and made a deduction, if you're grading him on the structure of his argument. The fact was that God had given the Gentiles grace without ceremony, without ritual, without a former history, without circumcision. 
This couldn't be denied. So the deduction is don't be afraid to follow God even if it seems like he's disposing of things that are dear to your heart. Don't tempt him by sidestepping his guidance. And if that sounds tough, which it is, only be reminded by the whole process of the visions coming down from heaven, a blanket full of beasts you're not supposed to eat, and Peter having to figure out, I can't call anyone unclean that God has called clean. I can't call anyone common who God hasn't called common. He's already been through all this, and there's actually more to the story, not just that time, but another. So what happened? All the assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So this is actually the second address. We're not told who does the speaking, Barnabas or Paul. It's probably both. But their point was to confirm that what happened with Peter in the house of Cornelius had happened all over the place, every town they'd been on in their missionary journey. Now, not much is said here. Of, of the addresses, we got most out of Peter, a little bit out of James, and practically nothing out of Paul and Barnabas. But I'd like to show you where the rest of that story is. You can look at this later for your own homework um, and let Scripture interpret Scripture. But in Galatians, and a, a lot of the, the you know, commentary writers and scholars think that Galatians was probably written sometime before this Jerusalem council because this problem had been stewing for a while. That delegation had been behind Paul everywhere he went. So he's got believers in this young church who are very confused and starting to believe these people have come behind him as if he forgot to tell them something. And as you can imagine, Paul, who described his heritage, his Phariseeism, his being sons of Abraham, all those things that they held so dear. And he had more credentials than any of them. He used a word. We translate it into English, dung. But really it should be translated into another word that we can't say in this room or should say ever unless you really need it. Just kidding. Worthless. No good in trade for the grace and righteousness that is provided on my behalf from Jesus. So this guy's loading both barrels, and he's writing, we think, to Galatia before the council. Here's what he said. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but that there are some who trouble you to want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And then he repeats the whole sentence as if he needed to say it twice for emphasis. But what he's saying, am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. He's talking about this problem as to whether or not you are required to be a Jew to be a Christian. And then the interesting part, if I had a Bible time machine, if that stuff were true in a you know, super book, I'd have set that machine to go watch what fix, is fixing to happen in verse 11. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. This is 
later in the same chapter, chapter 2. Because he stood condemned, for before certain men came from James, that's Jerusalem, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. I kind of want to think that Paul coined that term. Don't call them the Pharisee party. Call them the circumcision party because that's what they're all about. That's what they always talk about, wanting to circumcise everybody. Do you kind of sniff a little bit of angst in what he's saying? The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. (laughs) How does Peter feel when he said, even Barnabas is doing the same dumb thing you are? He's off the hook here. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And this is where I think Peter got his one-liner mic drop standing in front of the council in Jerusalem. Because Peter knew. He'd been through all this and relapsed, and now he's back on track again. There would be other relapses. Old habits die hard. Judaism is going to take a long while before it's not the main sniff in the air when you walk through these passages. So Paul saw the trajectory of the conflict that began over table fellowship. That's where it all started. You can't eat with them because they don't wash their food the right way, right? That's a big deal. Can't go to the house of Cornelius because he eats Gentile food. We talked about all the intricacies of that. But if you can't eat with them, where's the line between I refuse to eat with them and I refuse to be part of the same church they're part of or I refuse to believe that they're even believers? He saw this coming. So then it's James's turn, and that's in verses 19 through 21, if you want to look at that again. Therefore, my judgment, what he's saying there, that's a tough one because from the Greek, it, that's the best we can do is judgment. Some translations vary. But actually, that Greek word's a little weaker than judgment. We look at judgment as being, you know, judge says something and bangs the gavel, and that's that. This is him saying a little more than this is my opinion, but a little less than I'm the Pope and I get to change the rules. It's not what's going on here. What he says is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God, but should write them to abstain from things polluted by idols, that's one, from sexual immorality, that's two, from things that have been strangled, that's three, and from blood. And this is kind of confusing because if they just said you don't need to do anything but trust in Christ, what's these four things all about? We'll talk about this next week more, but enough for today is to say... All right, God makes no distinction. He's God, but we're people, and we're way different. Your culture, Gentile culture, has no restraints sexually. God's going to require some, just, just to let you know. Also, all the sacrificing done in the meat markets, you can eat it, and it'll be fine, but don't bring it to our house because we can't. It's just been way too long. Sorry. You can have your pork and shrimp tacos, but we're going to have to stick with brisket. What they're saying is, we're the weaker brother, and we're going to need your help with some of this till we get used to it all. 
And then from blood, there's these other things, but it sounds like, like an insider statement that might need some description. But for from ancient generations, Moses has in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogue. You're going to be hearing a lot of this if you come to synagogue about reason why we were told to stay away from all these things. So if we're asking, what did they identify as the purpose of the Lord in this passage? It's just two. Do you have to be Jewish to be Christian? Answer, no. What does he say? We should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God. But then two, do you have to behave differently after you've become a Christian compared to the culture you're coming from? Yes. Because God requires his standard of righteousness. And it'll be thorough. Does it have the intricacies of the law and dietary things? No. But can you just do whatever you want to and grace will cover it? Paul has more strong speech for that. Absolutely no. So we don't want to put words in their mouth, but we'll wait till next week for most of that. We're at a good spot to start asking, okay, how does this affect me? I have to be careful here. How does this apply to me? Well, this applied to people a long time ago that are a lot different than us. But there are also principles in here that do help. We can learn a lot from the way these people handled their differences and over something very important. The key phrase you should underline, I think, is is the, the point of the whole thing, is verse 28. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. It first seemed good to the Holy Spirit, so it seems good to us. They had a a standard by which they could come together and agree upon. It shouldn't come as a surprise that this works for any relationship. You just put two people together for life and expect them to be able to survive one another without some third-party standard like this book, the best one I know of. And that book will call foul. That book will be an encouragement. That book will say stop. That book will say go. But without that book, then it's just one opinion against the other. Who's in charge? Who can scream the loudest? Who can freeze the other one with silence? You've got to have a standard. That's exactly what they had. Their commitment to the will of God through the scriptures, what God had already said, was the thing that unified them. That's where they found themselves on the same page. That is also to say councils have no authority in the church unless it can be shown that their conclusions are in accord with scripture. If it didn't have the part, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit, it just seems good to us, then you've got the problem by which an entire reformation would be needed to correct. And even then, we've got problems. Anytime you get men together, they really bad want to say, this is what I say. But the only time any of them will ever agree without killing each other is when they say, God has said this first, so we have to fall in line with what he's already said. Because what he says is final. For those who are saved and part of a church, I think this is probably the greatest takeaway and should be the greatest comfort. Your church should settle all its disagreements 
the scriptures being the tiebreaker. Right? I mean, what church should decide, hey, we're going to go off script here? Well, it's not a church anymore, technically. But then again, um, and just to try to art- articulate this, there will never be unity except in response to a higher standard. And in this episode, involving a mixed group of believers from different backgrounds who desired to know only the mind of God, even though they had personal differences, but none more important than the Word of God, this is why they were able to say it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, which is practically unheard of today. You might hear, such and such was carried by a majority vote. Well, what about the minority? Sometimes they're disaffected and mad, maybe even dangerous. A few people can tear up a lot of stuff, right? You you don't want to split it between majority and minority. That's not what we see here in this passage. They all seem to agree. Unity is only possible when we're prepared to discuss freely and straightforwardly our differences on the basis of a common desire to know the mind of God. Having our mind made up beforehand may very well tune out the voice of God. Do you know the difference between having your mind made up and then knowing your mind, but also knowing that there might be people that know something that you don't, so you leave a little bit of room for learning? A great posture to adopt, even in your 90s, (laughs) right? When do we get too old to learn or be corrected? Our hearts are desperately wicked. Who can know them? So it's, it's dangerous to make up one's mind because usually you'll go into whatever meeting that is and let everybody have that mind. And then it might be harder to listen to the Holy Spirit. Now, is it that easy? Anybody want to raise their hand and say, I firmly believe that every single last discussion we'll ever have is mentioned at length and specifically in my Bible. I don't. (laughs) My Bible didn't tell me who I'm supposed to marry. It tells me a lot about how to act now that I am. So there's some specificity, but there's a lot of generalities too. You're just going to have to rely on the principles we know here and then common decency as a child of God among your family. One question that I like to ask in the limited experience I have in marriage counseling is kind of a trick question and I try to stick it in the middle of something like I'm changing the subject just to knock you know, some confusion into the discussion. So, what are you going to do together on your first Christmas? You're laughing. You know. We got married people in here. Because Christmas is kind of like a universal thing as far as American culture, right? Everybody does it. But who does it the same? Nobody. You've all got your little traditions. Do you start at mom's house? Or do you start at mom-in-law's house? Can you make them both happy? Can you be two places at one time? What do you do? Do you get your Bible out and say, we've got to figure out what to do here? It's got to be in the Bible. How we celebrate Christmas. No, Christmas isn't in the Bible. There's the birth of our Lord that Christmas celebrates. But we've turned that into, 
I don't know. Sometimes you want to put in a Christmas card, render unto Amazon the things <laughs> and render unto God the things that are God's. Because it's so commercialized and so traditionalized, it's basically a minefield once you start having children and your family grow. When you're a kid, it's great. Just sit down and rip them open. Time to go. How do you handle that stuff? Same way you handle any of the rest of it. Being as Christ-like as you possibly can by letting the other go first. And Jesus came here to die in our place. I mean, we couldn't have a better example. It's not complicated, but it is a battlefield at times. And a good church with a core of strong beliefs almost demands a vibrant and open discussion to hammer out differences as they come along the way. Or it'll grow into one of those churches where nobody talks about anything, but everybody's mad about something. You're going to have to trust the Lord that together as brothers and sisters in Christ, that if it's important, the Bible will talk about it. And if it's not, you'll get over it. I have to believe that that's the way it works. Now you can go home amongst yourselves or at lunch and talk about what do we have in common as Christians in a church that's really old with the Hebrews when new people came who didn't know about the Susquehanna something or another anniversary. How's that pronounced? Y'all know about that? Does everybody know about that? No, you don't know about that because not many people were around. Or were they? You don't know because you don't know about it. There are things that are different about every church. There are its traditions that are as unique as a family's Christmas traditions. But unless we're flexible to share those and not destroy the institutions of others wholesale without knowing anything about those either, we're probably going to be missing something. And at the end of the day, if what we're tasked to do is tell the good news and fill the mansions of heaven, then some of these things we're just going to have to let go in time and be glad it doesn't happen fast. A note to all young seminarians. I was one once upon a time. In fact, somebody the other day asked me, if I knew where I got all the gray hairs and if I was old enough to have them. I said, I don't know. Come back Sunday and ask the congregation. Maybe they'll know. (laughs) But in a younger spot with a less diversified understanding, it'd be easy to graduate seminary, ordained to the ministry of God, and assume that because you're ordained and educated that your preferences are ordained of God to impose on some church who's been doing it wrong all their lives. That's foolishness. Find a church that's doing it right. And what's right is really simple. Preach the word, sing the word, pray the word, read the words, all the word. And anything other than that simplicity, think very hard on making it very important because when it's time to go, it'll hurt even worse. Because only the word lives forever, right? I don't live forever. I'm already what they been called old souls so many times because I don't get anything that wasn't cool when I was like eight. It's, it's tough. I, I don't understand youth. I don't understand the uniform. 
I don't understand what looks like a trucker hat shoved down on a clown wig. I don't get that. Cut my hair tight. But I'm not saying that's bad. I think it's great. Y'all are laughing. I should end this. Land the plane, right? The church, the apostles, the elders kept it simple. And the final word was the word of God. The word of God settled their differences. And their differences at that point became personality, culture, something beautiful, so opposites can attract. Be glad that the Lord didn't invest all of his ministry in just one package, but that the kingdom of God is diversifying with every person who bows the knee. And I hope it can be said that as far as Wake Chapel goes, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to Wake Chapel to see no distinction other than the visible grace of God. And with that said, let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to look into a a picture book and to observe things we don't understand but to see these men filled with the Holy Spirit heroically laying down their preferences in order to acknowledge the clear work of the Holy Spirit. Lord, would you build flexibility in our thinking? Lord, would you give us compassion? May you rid our thinking of, of, of cliched and insensitive things that make people laugh but hurt others if that become a stumbling block to the wondrous message of your gospel Lord may we courageously speak the truth in love speak the truth but always with love may love never absorb the truth or vice versa but they both be there Give us the guts to do that as well. And Lord, would you see fit to employ us, enlist us in this great commission for which you died. Lord, we thank you for our time under your word this morning. We ask that you seal it to our hearts. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.